0: On August 1st, 2007, at the height of rush hour, the I 35W bridge that connects Minneapolis and St. Paul suddenly collapsed. Cars that were driving across the decking fell 115 feet into the Mississippi River below. One minute the bridge was there, and the next it was gone. Within a few moments, 13 people had died. Because the bridge fell below them. I remember visiting the site a a few months after the collapse. We were in Minneapolis and we drove to look at where they were building the replacement bridge. It was hard to imagine what it would have been like for the people who were driving over that span to suddenly have the terror of the bridge was no longer there. It took 16 months for the investigation into the collapse to publish its findings. The, the conclusion after a very extensive investigation was that the bridge had a design error from the beginning. In four places, you think about a bridge spanning a river, how big it is and how much there is. In four places, there were four gussets that were too small. Gussets are the metal plates that hold the beams together. Probably hundreds of gussets, I don't know, on a bridge that size. But four of them were designed too small. They were too small to carry the load that was placed on the bridge. Part of the load factor was that it was rush hour. And since the bridge had been built in 1967, rush hour had grown to carry a greater and greater load. In fact, over the years, the bridge had been modified to add lanes and to add an anti-ice system and a, a thicker decking, all adding weight to the structure. The final trigger to the collapse occurred around 2.30 in the afternoon before the bridge failed. At 2.30 in the afternoon, six loads of rock and sand were dumped directly over the bridge node that gave out. They were placed there along with a number of pieces of construction equipment because at 7 p.m. that night, there was a project to begin, a project to fill in potholes and to add another two inches of overlay to the bridge decking. That project never got underway because two and a half hours, or three and a half hours after that additional stress was placed on that bridge, it gave out. The plates cracked, they gave way under the strain, and the bridge itself fell into the river. Clearly, as people were driving across the bridge during the star rush hour, the bridge looked strong. It looked normal. There was no apparent problem. There were weaknesses in the construction, weaknesses that made the collapse inevitable. There is a chance this morning that our church has a similar problem. Our church may look strong from above. As we sit here and we look around at one another and we see the people gathered here, we may look strong, but internally, cracks might exist. Cracks could exist in the internal order that will cause the collapse of the church when pressure comes. This morning, we are moving into the final chapter of 1 Peter. We began this series last August, and Lord willing, before Easter, we will wrap it up. Throughout this letter, the theme has been how believers should respond to suffering, specifically suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Because they they claim Christ, they are suffering. In some places, it seems that, as Peter wrote to these various churches spread throughout Asia Minor, in some places it appears that they were already suffering because they were Christians. In other places, they could anticipate that suffering could be right around the corner. They were misfits in their culture, and their culture did not appreciate their stands for Christ. A couple of weeks ago, as we finished chapter 4, Peter concluded by instructing anyone who suffers that they are to accept such suffering as the will of God in their lives, and they are to accept it by continuing to do what is right, even though it might bring more suffering. The letter has been encouraging in many ways. Uh, Throughout, Peter has given numerous encouragement, but I would expect this final command we saw at the end of chapter 4 to keep on doing what is right would not be encouraging. I expect that Peter's original readers would have swallowed hard, stiffened their back a little bit as they think about the fact that we're being told to just keep doing the very things that have caused our suffering in the first place. Keep doing what is right, living for Christ, even if that exasperates the situation. Our response might be similar. It's one thing to hear encouraging words that suffering is not an accident, to to be told that what we're experiencing is God's design for our lives, and God, because He's good, has intended a good purpose in this suffering. That God is somehow, we may not know how, but to hear that God is somehow going to use what we're going through to bring glory to his name and good to our lives. It's, it's one thing to hear that. It's another thing to be told, keep doing the very thing that causes the suffering. We'd rather make adjustments. Lighten the pressure just a little bit. Alleviate the pain. If we're suffering for the cause of Christ, which we've seen at numerous points throughout this letter, is something that believers should assume might be inevitable, then this final instruction of chapter 4 suggests that the pressure will go on. It's the reality of, of ongoing continued pressure that calls forth our text here this morning. Remember, Peter is writing to churches. He's not simply writing to individual believers. In the New Testament, the New Testament never expects that Christians will be unattached from a church. Christianity is a collective engagement. We are to be tied together, integrated as members in a church, and that church then has a structure. What that means is that the ongoing pressure of suffering, the ongoing strain of persecution, it might be felt by the church overall. The structure of the church might feel the pain. In fact, it will feel the pain. Individually, we need to keep on doing what is right when we suffer for it. Collectively, we need to ensure that our church will survive the strain. The church, collectively, is where our love for one another plays itself out. That's the way God has designed things to work. As we live together in a corporate fashion, showing our love to one another, we arrest the attention of an unsaved world. The lost masses around us see and wonder. The church collectively is called to serve as brilliant witnesses of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. The church collectively is given the task to make and mature disciples in Jesus Christ. The church collectively is called to encourage and support individual Christians in times of trial. The survival of the church should be a central concern for every believer because our lives as christians are inter- integrated in intertwined connected to the very church itself the church becomes that which feeds our lifeblood as christians we should want to do all we can so that the church will survive in the face of suffering the ide- the idea that's generated By this concern, in the five verses we're going to look at this morning, the the concern that our church would survive is that internal order is required for a church to survive extended suffering. Internal order is required. It's not optional. It's required for the church to survive extended suffering. Much like the bridge that collapsed there between Minneapolis and St. Paul, the church will collapse if there are fractures forming within the internal structure. Suffering places a unique stress on the church. It brings challenge to the church. There is a risk when the church suffers that fractures will form if we don't pay careful attention to how God designed the church to function. Internal order is required for a church to survive extended suffering. Let's read our verses for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, notice we're connected to what he's just said. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witnesses of the suffering of Christ. And a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. "...exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sword to gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when Christ, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. These verses that I just read, they deal with the internal structure of the church. The the first four verses they they deal with the pastor of the church. The the main point that's communicated is that the pastors are to lead the church. God gave the church pastors, and pastors are to lead the church. Peter clearly addresses pastors in the first four verses. But it does that in the middle of a letter that has been addressed to churches. That that suggests that he expects the entire church to hear what he tells the pastors. I, I must admit while I was working on the sermon this week, I, I realized why I've heard these verses preached so many times in pastoral conferences. And why I've so seldom encountered these verses being preached in church. There, there are not really direct applications to make from these verses for the church overall. They, they speak directly to pastors. Yet, it's important that all of you understand what you should expect from your pastor. In our case, that would be from me. So, so to start with this morning, essentially I'm preaching a sermon to myself and you get to listen in. This is what God expects of the pastor. Peter assumes that there are elders within the church. He's writing; it's just a given. He he assumes they're there. The the New Testament church seems to follow the pattern of the Jewish synagogue. They called the the pastor the elder, the man who oversaw and led the con- congregation. And, and Peter appeals to the elders as one of them. We know Peter's an apostle. He has authority over the churches as that, but now he's just appealing as one of them. He's not asking the pastors of these churches where the suffering's happening to do anything he is not doing himself already. He recognizes that when suffering comes to the church, the leaders will generally bear the initial brunt of the suffering. And and he reminds them that that suffering and glory, those are two sides of the same coin. He's made that Clear before, Christ is our example. Christ suffered, and then that suffering led to glory. And the same thing will happen for us as believers. He said, all Christians, suffering will lead to glory, while pastors, suffering leads to glory. Things have not changed in the past 2,000 years. Time and again, church history has seen pastors bearing the brunt of persecution. The unbelieving world knows that if they can cause the pastors to, to cower before them in fear, then that fear will ripple through the, the rest of the church as well. The members will struggle with fear as well. I, I recall talking to Grace many years ago now when I think back on it, when I was considering leaving the, the business world and going into ministry. I, I was about to enter seminary, and I told her that from a worldly human standpoint, that decision to begin seminary and go into ministry could be a dangerous one. If things continue going the direction they are from a human perspective, I might find myself much more likely to be on the wrong side of public opinion as a pastor than I ever am when I was a project manager in the business world. The, the world doesn't really care too much what project managers are doing, but pastors, they, they tend to abuse As we saw last year, Pastor Tim Stevens in Canada. I don't know if you know his name or not, but Pastor Tim Stevens graduated from the same seminary I graduated from. He leads a church in Canada, and he found himself gelled multiple times last year because he insisted that the church has a biblical imperative to gather for worship. Like most of us, He took a break from worship when COVID first hit because we did not know much about it, but it became obvious over time that there were ways you could gather and still be relatively safe. And if it comes to relative relative safely and gathering for worship, worship wins because we have a biblical imperative to gather for worship. Well, the local mandates would not allow them to gather for months after months after months, and eventually... He ignored the mandates and ended up in jail because of it. The thing is, God has called pastors to lead the church. We are responsible as as pastors, we are responsible for ensuring that the church collectively strives to reflect Christ. We must reflect Christ to the world around us. Even when the world hates Christ. Even when we suffer because of it. You really should expect that of me. A pastor is to shepherd the flock of God. The people of the church are gods. They, they are bought by the blood of Christ. They are God's possession. The, the pastor only cares for them as, as a shepherd does for the sheep that he's been allotted to watch over from his master. I'm sure that Peter learned this lesson well as, as Jesus asked Peter directly three times, In John chapter 21, after Peter had denied him, after Christ had went to the cross, after Christ had rose again, Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you love me? And as Peter affirmed his devotion, Jesus told him in verse 16 of John 21, Shepherd my sheep. Peter learned this lesson. Now he instructs pastors. He goes on and instructs them by using three sets of contrasts to describe three traits that you should expect of your pastor, of me, or anyone else who is the pastor of your church. I would say these are general expectations, whether we live in a context of Christian suffering or not. Suffering will make these more necessary potentially, but these are just general traits. They're, They're simply traits of a good pastor a man worthy of leading the church. First, pastors are to lead the church with a voluntary spirit. Look at verse 2. Pastors or elders are to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to God. The point Peter is making is even though pastors are selected by a church vote, even though the church gathers together and votes a man to be their pastor, that man must never think that he's been forced into the office. He must remember he's in the position voluntarily. It's a little bit like the difference between a conscripted army and a volunteer army. A conscripted army has no choice in the matter They have no choice whether they serve in the armed forces or not. I I remember talking to a man who was conscripted as an 18-year-old into the German army for World War II. And I asked him at that point, did you believe what Hitler was standing for? Did Did you support what Germany was trying to accomplish? He said, all I believed in was living another day. My choice was either join the army and go to the front line or be shot on the spot. By contrast, an army for our country for decades now has been entirely voluntary. It is composed of men and women who have chosen to stand and do a patriotic duty defending our country. Well, pastors should never approach their responsibility of leading the church as if they're conscripts. Pastors serve voluntarily. They serve voluntarily. They are to relish the privilege of of spending their lives serving the people of God. So, first of all, pastors are to lead the church with a voluntary spirit. Second, pastors are to lead the church with a willing attitude. With a willing attitude. We, we could translate the, the second idea as either willing or eager. Peter makes a contrast, not for sore to gain, but with eagerness or with willingness. The, the idea is that pastor should never have financial opportunities being the, the driving force, the underlying motivation in his desire to serve as a pastor. They should not do it for sore to gain. It's the same term that Paul uses in, in 1 Timothy 3, verse Eight, when he says a deacon should not serve as a deacon for sordid gain. I think we all know that the problem that comes when you focus on financial gain is that when money becomes your, your motivation, in our sin-filled world, it quickly becomes a desire to bend ethics, to use questionable ethical practices so that we can get more of it. Sadly, there's been many examples using their position of leadership as a pastor for accumulating great wealth. Men who have led a church and gathered wealth in the process. Just, just think about the, the cars and the houses and the, the boats and the jets even that so many men that well, are well known really in our country in the health and wealth movement. What they own, what they possess. These preachers who often, ironically, peddle their their false gospel, which is really what the health-wealth message is, a false gospel in poor areas, and accumulate enormous wealth in the process. That is the antithesis of what a pastor should be. A pastor should display an eagerness to serve the church. There should be a willingness, a willing attitude, that the man would gladly lead the church Even if there's no compensation at all, he wants to serve the people of God. Paul certainly makes it clear in 1 Timothy 5 that a church should financially compensate the pastor if they're able. But money should never be the pastor's motivation for service. Rather, he should serve with a willing attitude. Pastors are, secondly, to lead the church with a willing attitude. Third, pastors are also to lead the church in exemplary fashion. Exemplary fashion. Verse 3 has this third contrast. Yet, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example to the flock. Proving to be examples to the flock. Frankly, this is the one of the three sets of contrasts that scares me the most. I am supposed to lead in such a way that if you follow my example, you will become more Christ-like. That terrifies me. I know how far I am from Christ-likeness myself. I I would much prefer that you do what I say, not what I do. Yet, the pastor is to lead in the exact opposite manner. The the pastor is supposed to lead not as a minor dictator of the church, there's been... Far to me, men who have fallen to this category that fail, that basically go to touch not the Lord's anointed type attitude as if they're many Davidic kings. Rather, a pastor is to serve entirely different ways. He's to be a role model who says, come and examine my life. Learn to love Christ as I love Christ. Pastors are never to use their positions of authority to oppress those under them. They are to recognize that the only reason that anyone is under them is because God has assigned them to care for a portion of His flock. I don't know how many times I've read this verse and I've been convicted if the reason that our church is small is because this is the only number of people that God can allot to me because I can't care for any others. We are to lead in such a way that we are caring for the portion that God has given of his flock. These are accountable, f- we're accountable for these souls. They, they are to walk, pastors are to walk, much as an ancient shepherd does, out front of the flock so that the flock simply follows along. Pastors are to lead the church in exemplary fashion. Remember, our goal is to have a church that does not fracture when the stress is placed upon it. Suffering brings stress. Internal order is required for a church to survive extended suffering. Internal order is required. The internal order of the church begins with the pastor, the, the leader of the church. Pastors are to lead the church. They are to lead with a voluntary spirit with a willing attitude, and in an exemplary fashion. At the same time, pastors alone are not responsible for the internal order of the church. It is much easier to lead when there are willing followers. In verse 5, Peter shifts his attention, and he admonishes young men. Young men are to submit to their pastor. That that word that begins verse 5, likewise... It clearly ties this verse to the previous one. Likewise, younger men. There's no doubt that the term elder in the first four verses is referring to the pastor. It's the one who leads the church overseas. What's less clear is whether the term younger men in verse 5 refers to anyone who is not a pastor or literally to young men. Scholars argue it both ways. Throughout this letter, Peter has made The point several times in different contexts that the believers are to submit to those who God has placed in authority over them. We know from other New Testaments that all believers are to willingly follow the pastor. The author of Hebrews bluntly states that believers in general are to obey your leaders and to submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable to you. The author of Hebrew writes that in chapter 13, verse 17. So Peter could be including all non-pastors when he says younger men, just using that term in opposition to elders. At the same time, I think as often those who are literally young men, who strive the most or struggle the most with submitting to the pastor. I know I had a lot more answers to issues when I was a young man than I do now. The older I get, the less I know. I also know that when I was younger, I had a lot more troubles being patient to wait for things to unfold. And I recognize I was not unique. I think Peter is likely calling out young men for a special admonition, knowing that the young men themselves are the ones that are most susceptible to bringing stress cracks into the church when the pressure comes. They are most likely to feel acutely the, the desire to do something about the stress. They, they, might, they are most likely to have this spirit of impatience. And they also have the energy. They have the energy to mount a response in the face of suffering, even when the response might not be well thought out at the moment. So Peter seems to send a special reminder to those most pruned to be Most prone to be impatient to submit to their leaders. Remember, submission, we've seen that word over and over. Submission means choosing to place your will under the will of another. Young men are to place their will under the will of the pastor. So young men are to submit to their pastor. Peter makes that point quickly, but then he moves on and addresses the entire church. All are to show humility to one another, all. So while we may debate if the young men refer to young men or everyone who's not pastor, we really can't debate that all refers to all. He says all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Everyone in the church is to show humility toward one another. He he uses the image there of clothing. Clothe yourselves in humility. That The term that uses specifically is a term that would picture a slave or a herdsman, someone like a shepherd, taking an apron and tying it around their garment so that their garment won't become soiled. I know we're most familiar with this idea in the kitchen, right? We, we've all seen women. And, and my, my granddaughter rejoiced this past week when my wife was able to pull out a tiny apron for her and, and put it on. We get the idea, we put an apron on to keep our clothes clean. Well, believers are to wrap themselves in humility in this manner. To keep themselves from being soiled by pride. Humility, more than anything else, can reinforce the internal structure of the church. If you think about it, cracks come when internal conflict develops. Cracks within the church come because of internal conflicts. Internal conflicts often develop when one person becomes upset that someone else has not done what they thought should be done. You didn't pick the right paint color. Not the color I thought looked best. You didn't prioritize the ministry that is important, in my opinion, for the church. I didn't like the songs that were selected. I didn't like what was said about me. I didn't like what was not said about me. After all, I worked hard yesterday at the work day and nobody even mentioned it. I liked the event that was planned, but it wasn't promoted rightly. Or I did not like the event that was planned. The list goes on, but in every case, the personal frustration boils down to pride. What I like or dislike has become the most important determinative of what the church should do. My thinking ranks highest. Even when someone sins against us, when they gossip about us or they speak unkindly to us, even when there's true sin directed toward us, our anger results normally because our pride is hurt. We're rarely upset that the person has sinned against our God. We're upset they've sinned against us. That's pride. The only thing that will keep our pride from rising up is clothing ourselves in humility. When we practice humility toward one another, none of these things will matter. None of these things will cause fractures within the internal structure of the church. They may matter in the sense that we have to address the sin, but we will do it in biblical fashion, seeking the glory of God rather than our own personal well-being. And when we do that, the internal structure of our church is strengthened, not fractured. This idea is so important that Peter grounds this final exhortation of our text today with a citation from Proverbs. Proverbs 3, verse 4, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We need God's grace if our church will survive the stress of suffering. We need God's grace if we will stand under any kind of stress. That grace comes to those who are humble. Humility is the conduit through which grace flows. All of us are to show humility toward one another. The I-35W bridge between Minneapolis and St. Paul, it collapsed when the stress that placed upon it exceeded the strength of the bridge. It could not bear up under the stress. Those gusset plates fractured and the joints broke, causing the entire bridge to give out. We will face similar stress in our church. Whether we stand or fracture is the question. Internal order is required for a church to survive extended suffering. Internal order is required. Suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. As we live as Christians in this world, we will suffer. That means collectively our church will experience suffering. This morning, Peter has shown us that God's design, what's required for us to have the strength to survive, is internal order. Pastors are to lead the church. Lead with a voluntary spirit, with a willing attitude, in an exemplary fashion. Young men are to submit to their pastor. And all of us are to show humility toward each other. Are we ready for the suffering? Should God bring it on our church? Are we ready? Internal order is required for a church to survive extended suffering. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that we would be a church that is prepared, ready to survive should suffering come upon us. Father, my prayer this morning is that you would examine each of us. Send your spirit to to do the heart-searching soul-wrenching examination that we need. Help us to each see where we are falling short, where we need to be transformed by you, to have greater humility so that we will strengthen our church rather than weaken it. May we do the duties that you have placed upon us because we love our Savior. May we stand up under suffering if it comes our way because we love our Savior. Regardless of what comes, may we joyfully magnify Jesus Christ. Amen.